Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Alana Mackay, a postdoctoral fellow and researcher at Australian Catholic University in the field of iron metabolism, immune system health, and diet manipulation. We discuss the impact of carb availability on iron metabolism, chronically low carb intakes and immune function, the differing impact of low energy, so low calories, and low carbohydrate and how these are often conflated on both immune and iron markers, and also Alana's most recent research published that looked at the acute effect of calorie restriction on performance markers and the pros and cons of this approach to be race weight for athletes. So Alana is, as I said, postdoctoral fellow at Australian Catholic University and is part of a really robust team of researchers exploring the impact of diet and exercise on a range of health outcomes in athletes with a specific interest in iron metabolism. So she completed a Bachelor of Science in Exercise Health and Sports Science at the University of Western Australia in 2014 and completed a postgraduate position within Physiology Department at the Australian Institute of Sport where she was involved in the preparation of many Australian athletes prior to the 2016 Rio Olympic and Paralympic Games. Since then, Alana has submitted her PhD titled The Effect of Dietary Manipulation on Iron Metabolism and the Immune System in Elite Athletes, which was undertaken in partnership with the Australian Institute of Sport, Western Australian Institute of Sport and the University of Western Australia. And now, as I said, she's at ACU and she is a postdoctoral fellow working on a range of different and exciting research questions. So I have put a link to Alana's work in the show notes and also where you can find her on Twitter, which is the best place to keep up to date with the work of Alana and her colleagues. Now, just a reminder though, before we kick on into the podcast, the best way to support this podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from guests such as Alana that I have on the show. All right team, enjoy this interview with Alana Mackay. Alana, thanks so much for taking time to speak to me this afternoon. And um, I'm super excited to talk to you because you have such an interesting portfolio of sort of research projects. And as I was looking through like your publications, in fact, a lot of them I had seen and all, not forgotten about, but your name was really familiar. And it was only when I was revisiting your your sort of publication list, I'm like, that's where I've seen Alana's name before. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about your contribution to, you know, iron metabolism and, and immune function and diet manipulation. Um, 
Can we start though with a bit of your own sort of personal and and professional background as to you know how you got this interest in sports nutrition and how you've sort of built up this to where you are now? Mm. So my um, from a personal side of things, I actually was a, a classical ballet dancer throughout my adolescence, and that was what I did full time. Um, for a long time and it was, you know, high discipline, very um, different environment to maybe elite sport. But I was always fascinated in the way the human body moves and went to university, um, did a general sports science degree and then actually took a postgraduate position at the Australian Institute of Sport where I worked with uh, elite athletes and some really fantastic scientists um, for a one-year position. And during that time, I sort of started to scope out different areas of sports science and sports nutrition was one of those areas that I had only a small amount of exposure to, but met some very, very good people um, and went on and started doing a PhD, looking really around diet and how diet affects different aspects of athlete health, being both the immune system and iron regulation. And then since then, I'm still working with somewhat the same team, but really focusing in on Uh, For my own personal research interests, iron metabolism, that's definitely, I always wonder and and are curious how or why athletes are always so iron deficient comparative to other populations. So that's definitely my my primary research interest, but I'm pretty lucky to work with an amazing group of researchers here at the uh, Australian Catholic University. Um, So I really extended that out into looking at female athletes more generally. Um, We do a lot around carbohydrate and energy manipulations. at all sorts of other topics. Yeah, so interesting. And with so did your own personal um, sort of nutrition, I suppose, interest, obviously it sort of grew from, from your experience. And just curious, like have you, um, f- did you fall into some of the traps that young athletes can fall into as part of your sort of like your dancing and stuff and, and your career there? Yeah, a little bit. I think it's only when you can um, objectively look back at what you've done, especially as an um, an adolescent. You know, I was dancing full time, so twenty five hours a week from the age of thirteen to eighteen, and there is no way that what I ate was sufficient to fuel what I was doing. And and iron was a part of that as well. So you can look back and think about all the things I would have done differently, and how I probably could have been a much more um, healthy and probably energetic person. But um, yeah, it it does make you think back. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, you know, I've spoken to Dr. Nikki Kay on the podcast a couple of times and she, um, I, I imagine you're familiar with her work and, you know, she, uh, her experience with dance and, and thinking about, um, dance as a sport basically because it is I mean that the hours and the energy demands of it are just um you know it's absolutely up there with some of the most demanding sports and of course in your work um sort of as a professional as I understand it you've done a lot of your work with endurance athletes with um triathletes and race walkers and and things like that which I'm sure that will well which obviously we want to sort of delve into um Alana can we sort of begin with your PhD? So um, looking at dietary manipulation on iron metabolism and the immune system. So what were the overarching questions that you were hoping to answer from your uh, topic? Yeah, I think um, I was in a really lucky position when I started my PhD in that there were a lot of different nutritional strategies that were of interest at the AIS and with the um, sports nutrition group there. So things like ketogenic, low-carbohydrate, high-fat diets was a big topic and formed a big part of my thesis. But 
also um, sort of periodized training models where carbohydrates strategically manipulated, um, sleep low, train low, and also um, scenarios of sort of very high carbohydrate intake for endurance athletes around training the gut. And so all these strategies are really focused around optimizing performance. But what's sometimes lost when you're trying to optimize performance is that your health and different parts of your um, body systems that's related to health being, in my instance, iron regulation and um, immune function, it's really important that they're not compromised because of what you're doing to achieve performance. Because if your you know, iron deficiency is always going to have a larger impact on performance and maybe some very small shifts in when and where you're eating your carbohydrates. So we really wanted to look at these common strategies that have been implemented in the daily training environment of athletes and look at the effect that had on um, different health systems. Yeah. And Alana, did you sort of go in with any preconceived notions and were surprised by any of the findings? Like I've got, you know, a couple of the papers, which I want to just ask specifically about, but in general, like were the sort of thoughts and feelings around some of these strategies, uh, did you sort of already know what you were going to find or were you surprised by your findings? Um, I think surprised by some aspects of the findings. I think when you're undertaking research, I think the ketogenic diet was a really big study that we did where three weeks adherence to this diet, we saw athletes feeling pretty terrible, particularly in the first week we put them on these diets and we asked them to train so much. So when they then reported in um, some of the data that they felt terrible, I'm not shocked by watching the way they trained. Um, But some of the the, uh, more biochemistry markers that we looked at, some of that results were um, somewhat interesting and probably sparked more questions and ideas out of um, questions and answers than what came out of my thesis alone. Yeah, for sure. And can we touch on iron metabolism particularly and diet manipulation? Like what is the link between iron metabolism and how we might utilize um, or absorb and say a, a ketogenic diet? Like do we are there known links now between what happens there? Yeah, I think when we talk about athletes specifically and iron, we're really interested in the function of the iron regulatory hormone hepcidin. So this hepcidin has only been discovered probably two decades ago and its function and role in athletes is still being really looked at. Um, and essentially what we know when we do an exercise bout is that we have an inflammatory response and that res- inflammatory response is actually what triggers the release of hepcidin about three hours post-exercise and increases in hepcidin actually block iron absorption. Now what we do know is that when we're doing very long training bouts, that inflammatory response is going to be greater and therefore the hepcidin response and the time in which iron absorption might be impaired is going to be greater. And we've also seen that uh, when we are training in a low carbohydrate state, um, the muscle actually signals the liver via IL-6 to release more glucose because the muscle starts to realize that it's running low on fuel it releases IL-6 from the muscle itself, which is an inflammatory cytokine, and that signals the liver to start increasing more glucose for the body to work. But at the same time that muscle is releasing IL-6 for the body to work, it's also releasing IL-6 to trigger hepcidin three hours later. So when we're training in these low-carbohydrate states, the hypothesis was that we were going to see these increases in hepcidin greater than what you normally would. And the ketogenic diet is really a repetitive model of training in low-carbohydrate states, particularly when we look at, um, particularly in the study you're about to mention, um, elite 
race walkers, these guys were training upwards of 100 kilometres a week. And that's a very much a repetitive inflammatory stimulus, which we thought may have implications on both iron status and iron regulation. Mm. And what did you find? We saw that uh, within this study and follow-up studies that it was that the low-carbohydrate diets or the ketogenic diets were causing greater hepcidin responses to exercise. And over time, particularly longer than what we're able to study in our investigations here, but we do think that's going to have an impact on iron status. So we do suggest that if athletes are wanting to adopt ketogenic diets, that they are very mindful of how much iron they're eating. Um, we did see when we analysed the diets that the ketogenic diet is lower in dietary iron because a lot of carbohydrate-rich foods like breads and cereals can be fortified in iron. And as soon as you remove that, um, you are seeing a lower dietary iron in the diet. So we do suggest athletes on ketogenic diets be particularly aware of how much iron they're eating and potentially when they're eating it. So you don't want to be eating it while you're in an extended period of hepcidin elevation because you're not going to absorb as much. And if you're a ketogenic athlete, you may think about timing your iron to try and avoid those larger peaks in hepcidin. Yeah. Alana, the the iron that's used to fortify those products, and I've never really known, like I've, always, I've tried to find the information for this, but is it an iron that we can absorb anyway? Or is it like plant iron? So yeah, is it heme or non-heme that's fortified? Typically non-heme. Um but I think we sometimes I think we focus too much on whether something's heme or non-heme. Iron is going to be iron when you look at it holistically. Yes, you're going to get better absorption from heme iron, and they're definitely the sources we would promote you look at, especially if you're struggling with iron deficiency. But if you're removing a big element of your iron from your diet without looking at how you can um, replace that and alter it, and particularly the ketogenic diet because – you can't up your protein too high, otherwise when you ingest the protein, it will turn into carbohydrate during metabolism. So protein's kind of fixed and it's the fat that's very high. So if the protein's fixed, there's not really extra room for you to take in more heme iron through the diet. And non-heme iron is your source of iron that you're probably going to need. And if you're not getting enough of it through some of these fortified sources or even just carbohydrate-rich sources, you really need to figure out how else you can achieve that in your diet. And it's not impossible, but it yeah. just requires much greater consideration. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I guess it's – and so we've got um, – I guess diet is on a spectrum, right? So we've got high-carb, high-carb, low-fat. I mean, that's uh, a conventional way to think about it. But, you know, like high-carb um, athletes, and then you've got um, ketogenic athletes. And then, of course, you've got that sort of middle ground, and you've got athletes who might be more sort of lower-carb or periodized carbohydrate. And do we know much about how iron, um, what the iron status is like of, of groups in that sort of periodized carbohydrate group where they might put in carbohydrate in and around training but else, um, elsewise be a little bit lower? Yeah, we looked at a part of my PhD thesis. We had a, um, a study looking at a sleep low periodization model. So this means the athletes would do really high training and set training sessions, um, sorry, very high intensity training sessions in the evening that then restrict their carbohydrate and have no uh, carbs while they go, went to bed and went to sleep and woke up the next morning and trained in a fasted state. And we did this twice with the athletes. Um, once when they did a cycling bout in the morning and once when they did a running bout in the morning and then repeated it with high carbohydrate as a comparison. And we actually saw that when the exercise session was low enough intensity, so one hour or no more than one hour, quite low intensity, we didn't see any large disruptions to iron regulation. Um, but if the exercise session was a little bit 
too intense or too uh, the inflammatory stimulus was a little bit too high, there were some small adjustments to iron um, metabolism that would be deemed unfavorable. But in a separate study, we actually looked at the repetitive cycling of these periods of low carbohydrate availability over a three-week period. And we saw that no differences between those that periodized across a three-week period and those that had consistent high carbohydrate availability oh, interesting. Um, had any differences in their iron status at the end or their regulation. So I think whilst we could be aware of some of the small um, adjustments that are occurring when you do maybe train fasted or train um, after sleeping low, in the holistic long-term sense, as long as you're eating enough carbohydrate per day, you're probably um, not going to have a, a, a large impact on iron regulation. Yeah, no, that's great. And of course, you know, this the sort of periodized carbohydrate models used to for um, athletes to potentially gain more adaptations that are favorable for mm. endurance. Like, is this still the case, Alana? Has anything shifted in that um, periodized carbohydrate space that listeners might not be aware of or any updates compared to say what, I don't know, we may have known five years ago? Yeah, I've, there are studies that are still coming out and looking at this. I think the general place we've landed is that it's likely the molecular aspects are um, changing in a way that's positive if you are training low. Um, we are seeing some molecular adaptations, but when we look at it in a practical sense, in real-world athletes doing real-world races or training activities, we get to really see that difference manifest in terms of performance or training ability. So we always like to see nice things happening in the muscle, but how well it transfers into real-life race performance. And if it's the difference between athlete medals at the Olympics, I'm not quite convinced yet. But either way, it does provide a really um, interesting stimulus in terms of different training models. Um, it probably also it's probably more hard um, to train fasted compared to fed. So it's not always a bad thing to do these things anyway. Um, maybe getting a bit more you know, pushing through adversity for the same training session, I guess, or a harder stimulus. That's not a bad way to look at it. But I wouldn't hang my hat on that being the difference between gold and silver at the Olympics yet. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great way to put it. Um, now, Alana, some people, like when you look at the studies and they're like, three weeks, that's not long enough. Describe to us why actually this is quite a good model to look at, say, chronic versus acute. Like, is three weeks long enough? Is it that that was just what you had funding for? Like, it's really good to understand it more. Yeah, and it's probably the biggest critique of our work as a group is that we've only gone for three, I think three and a half weeks is the longest study we've done. But it's just so physically um, taxing to implement these studies. I can tell you, we had one of our camps, we had um, about 30 athletes and we would have had close to 15 support staff there every day working. When you're um, cooking and feeding athletes every single day and weighing the food that they're eating, it's it's physically exhausting. And the diet is also very hard for the athletes and pushing them to three weeks really was quite difficult, um, particularly the first half of the camps or the first week and a half is the most difficult and it gets a little bit better but to ask an athlete to go much further than that, knowing that it's a decrement to their performance, it, it's really quite difficult, difficult ethically. So, you know, if you could tell me that I had a group of elite athletes that wanted to go for six months and I had all the resources in the world to fund it, I absolutely would. Um, and there are some great cross-sectional studies that have looked at six-month um, periods of keto-adapted versus non-keto-adapted athletes. But what we implemented was an intervention, and that's much different different and more difficult than a crossover study in terms of trying to control for that length of time. 
Um, and we've also done now shorter studies. We did a, a five or six day intervention and we didn't see any real differences between our results at five days and our results at three weeks. Um, so we think the adaptations are quite rapid. Um, but the long, there are long term effects that we are probably missing. And I would take my hat off to anybody that can actually control dietary intake for that period of time because it's a really big task to do. Yeah. And you know, like I have mates and they've been like keto, low carb for, for years. And you've undoubtedly heard of these people as well, you know, like just the, the type of people that are. And I imagine that, um, that to be as, to sort of gather those people up or to actually intervene in someone who isn't like that and then to spend years doing that, then it, it, it of clearly is next to impossible. But it would, you know, it is sort of interesting to think about um, the, I suppose, the lived experience versus what you can do in a lab. Um, having said that, like, I saw a tweet of yours, I think it was last night, and you had pictures up of like all of the stuff ready to measure biomarkers. You had all the um, food weighed on scales and the, like these lines of like meals. And you were like, this is Supernova 7, we're kicking off. And, you know, just the amount of um, organization and precision required and funding to do. Um, the type of research you do is pretty phenomenal, really. Yeah, and it, I think that's a really key point. It's it's not cheap and we don't want to, um, you know, if we're going to invest in research, we want to be able to have a meaningful impact for athletes. Um, we don't, you know, if we're seeing no differences between five days of keto diet and three weeks of keto diet in these athletes, at the moment, why would we try and do six months of controlled dietary intake if we can pivot our research question and try and apply something that's more applied towards the athlete right now. Um, and it is, it's a huge financial investment. It's also, you know, when we do these camps as a research member, Supernova 7 you've just touched on and we went and lived um, at altitude on a mountain for three and a half weeks. So all the researchers are away from their families, away from their friends, um, living with these athletes and doing everything we can to support them. But it's a, real, a really big commitment um, and you can't just – sort of think that can go on for six months without a rotating <laughs> task of team. So, yeah. yeah, you're right. It's a big financial commitment as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, Alana, can, so you touched on um, being mindful of, I suppose, either getting in dietary iron or finding supplement solutions for athletes and the role of hepcidin. Can you just remind us, like, what are the practical uh, recommendations for athletes in and around iron and when to take it? Yeah. So whether it's dietary iron or um, oral iron supplements, there are some sort of key rules, I guess you could say, around how to maximise your absorption from that supplement. Uh, the first thing is supplementing in the morning. So there is a diurnal variation to hepcidin. It is lowest in the morning, which means if you're consuming your iron or supplement at this time, you are going to get the most out of it. So the morning supplementation is a, a big one. We also know that there's um, this can be difficult because there are things that can inhibit iron absorption. So if you're co-ingesting your iron with uh, calcium or polyphenols, which are found in caffeine sources, usually like coffee and tea, um, that can actually inhibit iron absorption. So we like to say you can stay clear of those factors, but if you're taking a fortified iron cereal in the morning with some milk and some coffee, it's kind of hard to get around that. So you can work with what you've got, but I, that would be the best recommendation. And the best recommendation is actually to take your iron fasted. So that would be an oral iron supplement only, but if you actually take it fasted, you can have 
we think it's about 50% better absorption um, compared to when you take it with food. And that's a typical iron salt That's a, um, compared to other newer formulations. Um, and some of the other things when we think about iron around exercise, we actually suggest that you take your iron either before, sorry, morning exercise. So if you're somebody that trains in the morning, we suggest you take your iron supplement before training, so immediately before training or up to 30 minutes post-training. But as soon as you start to go further out from post-training than that, even one hour, you're going to see decrements in the amount of iron that can be absorbed. So you really want to get that iron in as close to exercise as possible if you're training in the morning. And if you're not training in the morning, still take it in the morning. So that's kind of the, the general thought around iron at the moment. There's still a lot of work to be done in um, optimising the timing and the way that we take iron supplements, but that's sort of one of the rules around timing. Yeah. Oh, no, that's great. Do you know, I saw a, um, a, a study that looked at Floridix. Do you, guys, do you have Floridix over in Australia? I don't think so. I'm... It's this plant-based iron supplement that is um, that is a, a liquid and it's quite sweet and we have it in our supermarkets and our health store and it's almost the go-to for iron supplementation. And um, it's actually like it also says on the label, it's full of polyphenols to really help your iron absorption. And the study was done and it was like, actually, you know what? Floridix is pretty rubbish for <laughs> yeah. iron absorption because of all of those polyphenols. So um, so the fact, you know, you mentioned that that's the sort of key consideration when taking it with caffeine and, and tea. Um, I think it's something that, you know, there are other things which people just wouldn't be aware of, I guess. Yeah, and it's, it's really a bit of a contradiction because we say take your iron in the morning, but in the morning, you're going to have your breakfast cereal, which is probably fortified with iron, which is great, but it's also <laughs> served with milk, which has calcium, yes. and you're probably going to have a coffee at the same time. And all those things actually work against iron absorption. Um, so it's a bit contradictory and you have to just find a way to make it work and work within the recommendations to suit your lifestyle. You know, I'm never going to say to somebody, don't take, don't drink your coffee in the morning so your iron supplements better absorb because they'll be cranky and probably won't train well. So you've got to find a way to balance it out within each athlete's lifestyle about how you can optimise um, the ingestion and way you take iron. Totally. I have a friend who um, whose cat wakes her up at about four o'clock every morning, and what she's done is she's actually started taking her iron supplement. Then it's a great time. And then to when take she them. gets <laughs> up at about five thirty, then she can have her coffee, and she's like, "Cool, I am good." Yeah, that's yeah. a really good time to take it. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're up at that time um, in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. That's the thing. Um, so, Alana, can we just have a think about the immune function? So, I so I studied nutrition back in the nineties, and I remember there was a lot of um uh i'm trying a, a guy who did a whole heap of work on carbohydrate in the immune system and i just cannot remember what it is. mark i want to say his name is mark someone i can't remember he's he's like a he's an old school nutrition guru actually i think from australia and um and at that time when i was studying my postgraduate um sort of sports nutrition paper the, there was a there appeared to be a strong association between the immune system and carbohydrate intake and our ability to um, help dampen or resolve inflammation, um, and and also you know have a healthy immune system. So when you were looking at the immune system, what were your sort of um, uh, questions going in, and and what did you find? Yeah, so the immune system, I had two fantastic PhD supervisors. Pete Peeling was around the iron and then I had um, Professor David Pine who was really interested in the immune system. And we found this joining link with IL-6. So that cytokine I talked about before that upregulates hepcidin, it also starts the inflammatory cascade that occurs after exercise. And so we thought if we are seeing that 
um, increase in IL-6 due to the signaling of the muscle to the liver, we thought we might see an increase in some of the immune markers we're looking at as well. And so when we're thinking, so I came across one of your studies looking at that sort of low periodize, uh, sorry, periodized and high carb diet and what impact it did have on immune function. Like what was the major finding? Yeah, we actually saw it didn't have as much as an effect as we thought it might. Um, yeah. We saw that um, the perception of health, particularly in the keto groups, when we looked at some of these immune markers, they actually felt uh, like their health was deteriorating, but we didn't actually see it in the biomarkers we're collecting. Um, and same with the periodized group, we didn't actually see any changes. There are some issues around what biomarkers we took, and I'll be the first person to say that they were very easily accessible biomarkers that we could actually implement with athletes. Um, and they didn't seem to change. But if we were to do some of the more invasive procedures that some other people have done, we may have seen some more changes. But how functional those changes are in the course of an athlete's daily training environment is still to be looked at. Yeah. Interesting. So because did you use salivary um, markers? Yeah, we looked at salivary IgA as the primary marker um, yeah. and then looked at some of the white blood cell functioning as well as, as sort of secondary supportive markers. Generally, we see the blood cells change, um, but it's more a response to exercise than maybe the dietary interventions. Exercise has a big effect on the immune function. Again, it's it's probably just a necessary effect, and I don't think it means that you're more susceptible to illness, but um, we do see a big effect on immune functioning from exercise and whether the small changes that diet are having on top of that are actually meaningful for an athlete, I'm, I'm still unconvinced. Yeah, yeah, cool. And if you were to use more invasive measures, what measures would they have been? Yeah, you can do some really cool stuff where you can um, inject different viruses. That sounds terrible the way I say it like that. but <laughs> Particularly you, now. <laughs> yeah, and, and vaccine models where you can sort of, yeah. um, you can pro you can sort of, what's the right word? You have a very uh, clear, you're provoking a response in a controlled way. Yes. And you, yeah. you can really see how that response is changed or the immune system's changing in response to that exact stimuli. Um, whereas what we've done is we really just measured the immune function at rest and in response to exercise. But exercise, it's a great model because it's it provokes big inflammatory responses, especially in some of the exercise bouts we were doing. But how meaningful what we were looking at really was. I'm, I'm not quite convinced. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point, isn't it? Because there's a lot of focus on certain things you can do to manipulate diet or, uh, I don't know, I'm just going to say other lifestyle things or a supplement, but actually the biggest over, over sort of umbrella um, consequence or I suppose the biggest thing maybe is just the exercise itself. Like, yeah, so you mean sort of anything else on top of it might not be meaningful. And we see these huge spikes with exercise and changes in some of these markers, but we don't see athletes getting sick every day and that's because they're pretty robust. And so you're looking at big big changes in biomarkers that don't mean much. What's the small addition on top of that going to do? Um, potentially if they're exposed to a virus at the time, maybe, but that's pretty unlikely and that's not what we're looking at when we're looking at the general health of athletes over time. Yeah, you know, that's great. I remember seeing something where someone said, you know, if you just looked at um, the outcome of exercise with regards to its impact on inflammatory markers and the immune system, you would think someone was having some like massive um, sort of health crisis. Yeah, and that's why we... Yeah, we use a lot of these models. I think um, Hepcidin, we looked at that or first looked at that in a um, was it liver failure or something like chronic disease. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then we went, oh, those inflammatory responses 
that are triggering hepcidin in that model also would work in exercise. So it is interesting. Exercise and some of these really severe health implications can provoke the same same markers to be elevated. Yeah, but in a, in essence, with exercise, like you mentioned, IL six, like that is that. Am I right in thinking that this is now you know that we look at IL six in exercise as um, us adapt as part of the adaptation process? Like we don't necessarily you don't want a low IL six response because potentially you're not going to get adaptation from the training. Am I right in that? Yeah, sort of. So I think IL six is um, it's an inflammatory cytokine and it's important because it has a trigger of um, it. Well, it triggers a lot of other events, which is trying to bring the body back into homeostasis after exercise. If it didn't do that, we wouldn't, you know, the health, the immune system might just keep going off forever. And if we train more, the same exercise bout will start to produce a lower IL-6 response. And that's a good thing in essence because you're starting to use your muscles more efficiently and it could be seen as a training adaptation. But, you know, I would never suggest as part of the um monitoring of athletes that we start to look at differences in IL-6 between people as a marker of anything. It's more just that it stimulates other responses. Okay, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, so another part of your research looked at both, obviously we we're talking about carb availability, low, periodized or high, but also energy availability. And often what you see is that people conflate the two. Like, like I often see it argued that some of what we, um, some of the criticism against low carb, people are like, well, it's not even that it's not the low carbohydrate per se. It was the fact that they had low energy availability because their calories were lower. Um, I understand that you have actually teased out a bit of this difference in some of your research. Alana, so, you know, were there any big takeaways from looking at both low-carb availability and energy availability? Yeah, I think I'd say we did a study where we had three groups of elite athletes, one that we maintain high-energy, high-carb, one that we had a keto diet, so high-energy, low-carb, and then another group where we um, implemented a low-energy availability-style diet. And so as a result of shrinking energy, you're shrinking carbohydrate as well. But it sort of was the mid-range between the other two diets. And what we saw was that um, whilst energy can be really low, if there's enough carbohydrate in the system still, it can actually save some of the responses that we were seeing. So the ketogenic diet was really associated with poor bone health um, or bone turnover markers and also with um, elevated hepcidin concentrations, which has implications for iron absorption. So we did see that carbohydrates probably the more dominant factor. And even in these energy availability models, if there is sufficient carbs, they should, at least in the short term, we've only looked at the short term and that's a really important point to make. But in the short term, you should be able to undergo periods of low energy availability without significant changes to some of those key health systems. Again, as long as carbohydrate is put into the diet. Yeah. Oh, that's super interesting because, of course, part of performance is, um, you know, being like is uh, for a lot of sports, we're interested in body composition and and being as lean as possible, I suppose, without compromising those health uh, markers, right? Yeah, and I think that's a nice way. Uh, I think we can look at it in a way that we can periodize body composition. If And I would say if anybody wants to do some reading, Trent Stellingworth has a great paper around periodized body composition of his wife over a long period of time. And what you can do is you can sort of put mes at like little micro cycles of low energy availability into your annual training plan to achieve peak body composition during 
or just prior to a performance outcome that you may be interested in. And this is, again, really sophisticated sports nutrition. So you're doing this at the top level. But if you're doing a short, sharp period, like I said, it's not going to have a huge impact on some of those health markers. What is going to have an impact, though, if you're in a very chronic, moderate state of low energy availability where, yes, you might be achieving your body composition goals to an extent, and that will plateau over time, but to an extent, um, but it's going to come at the risk of um, things like increased risk of stress fractures, iron deficiency, and a whole bunch of other um, complications. So really short periods of time where you can implement low energy availability can be beneficial to manipulate body composition. Yeah, and when you're thinking low energy availability, so um, in the literature it's often, uh, as, as I understand, defined as lower than 30 calories per kg of lean body mass and so is that the is that what you're referring to or is it lower than that like what what sort of cutoffs were you looking at yeah I think there is actually about to be an update from the IOC around REDS and um, low energy availability I'm not sure the cutoffs are the best way to look at it Um, the research that's done that's looked at the cutoffs Firstly, in females, and we know males can suffer from REDS and low energy availability too, and we actually think their cutoffs are a lot lower than females. Um, We also think that the research that's been done really looked at um, pulsility of hormones and bone health for those cutoffs. So I think they're very applicable to when we're looking at bone health, but there is a bunch of other consequences of low energy availability that um, are not captured within those cutoffs at the moment. And we don't know. That's why. It's not that we're doing a bad job at research or we're misinformed. We just don't have the information yet, and we're only going to see this area grow. So at the moment, I think it's important to measure these markers um, and and do the calculations for these um, energy availability thresholds, but understanding maybe a dip in low energy availability is more important than, you know, you can be 30.1 or 29.9 and is one worse than the other? Probably not, you know, not that I don't think that's actually meaningful, but looking at changes over time, particularly athletes that might be coming out of adolescence or starting to really try and do different things with their body composition, um, I think that's the better approach to defining low energy availability. Um, in the studies we've done with males, we've uh, put energy availability at 15 kilograms per kg fat-free mass, and that's that's a very severe energy deficit um, and can't be sustained for more than probably what we've done realistically. Um, it's it's probably the lower end of what you could achieve through a dietary intervention. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I've got a friend who's in the sort of physique space, and he's done his PhD, and he's like he's a very smart guy, and and I've like when he was competing in bodybuilding, um, like he's relative, you know, like if you think about it, like he's a guy, he's quite big, he's quite muscular, and I think I'm trying to remember, I think he got down to ten cal's per kg, uh, uh, uh body mass, and again, sustained for a very short period of time. Like this guy, big guy on like 1400 calories a day, which is, uh, which is, which, you know, is part of, was part of his particular sport. So, you know, but yeah. Yeah, Short um, and severe, we think. Yes. It's, is definitely less detrimental than the 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 moderate prolonged over time and low energy availability. And we don't have real great evidence to suggest that at the moment or direct comparisons, but Everything we can piece together of the literature probably paints that picture. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, of course, the most recent paper um, in and around energy availability, you looked at performance, didn't you, Like, and what what potential outcomes to performance um, might arise from these sort of short dips. Are you able to just to go into detail into sort of uh, what performance outcomes you looked at, but also what you did 
and of course what you found. Yeah, so this study was uh, the first authors, uh, uh, Louise Burke and Jamie Whitfield here at ACU with me, and we had a group of elite race walkers and we put them on, it was a nine-day low-energy availability intervention. Um, so we had half the walkers just stayed on high energy and then half the walkers went on to this low-energy availability intervention. And we did a 10K time trial or a 10,000-metre time trial on the track before and after the intervention. And 24 hours prior to the intervention when we weighed them in, uh, sorry, 24 hours prior to the race when we weighed them in, we did see a significant shift in body composition and, and body weight in the low energy availability group. So our intervention was really effective at um, reducing body mass. But once we refed them with adequate carbohydrate availability, because we didn't want to race them when they were depleted in carbohydrate, we'd be looking at the effects of carbohydrate and glycogen. So we gave them 24 hours of a, a high-carbohydrate diet, just like the high-energy group, to get those glycogen stores back. And then we raced them on the track. And what we found was that there was no differences in race performance between the two groups. And what it shows is that um, race performance is so much more complex and just lighter is faster. So whilst there's this notion that get as light as you can and you'll be as fast, there are other things that could have happened during that training period, that nine-day training period, that are going to affect performance. And one of the things we measured as part of this study was um, sort of their perceived feelings of how they were doing. And both rest and recovery or recovery scales, we saw that the low-energy availability groups were feeling more stressed and they were feeling less recovered over that time. And that impacts training quality and all sorts of other things. So as much as low energy and body weight can be shifted, whether that translates to performance or not, I think is not as simple as maybe it's been made out to be. And I think we need to consider training quality, um, the athlete's general happiness. Like during these low energy availability periods, I'd have some of the boys walk up and be like, can I just have a little bit more food? And it's, the answer is no, because you've got to keep them in low energy availability. <laughs> but it can be a bit soul crushing sometimes for them because they're just hungry. Yeah. And that yeah. starts to play with their mind and their psychological state and doesn't allow them to train as well. Um, so performance, I think, is much more complex than just lighter is faster. Yeah, no, perfect. that's a, such a great point. And so with these guys, when you looked at body mass, was it just weight that you looked at or did you have the ability to, I don't know, dexter them or anything? Yeah, we did dexter them and it was primarily fat mass they lost. So they were pretty good at sustaining their muscle mass. And we did a uh, the Supernova 7 that we've just done. We actually learnt from our first findings and upped the protein just a little bit more because if they've got enough protein intake, they can sustain that muscle mass, at least in the short-term periods that we were implementing what was going on. So what they had lost in the study that I just talked about was primarily fat. Yeah, no, that's great. And if I relate this back to what we were talking about with these sort of short-term dips in energy to help improve body composition, but do it in a way which doesn't impact negatively on health, the nine-day period that you used in this trial, is that the type of period which, with which a short-term change in energy availability availability might be all right or is it two weeks or what is it that you've like do you can you give an answer to that <laughs> I don't know if I can I think um what we're about to talk about in the well what the people that have written the new IOC consensus statement are talking about is this thing around severity of low energy availability and the dose so it could be a longer period of time with a less severe dose of low energy availability or less severe threshold or it could just be a couple of days with a very very severe energy deficit and that how that sort of equals out as a dose and what maybe is the optimal formula I don't think we have the answer to that yet yeah no and actually that sort of follows suit to a lot of these if you think about uh 
weight loss strategies that people use, like it's that continuous versus intermittent um, sort of diet restriction approach, right? And I guess it's it's that's a super interesting space, which will be um, good to to see more research sort of emerging from that. Eh? Yeah, and I think we'll see a lot more research going into this going forward. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, hey, Lana, I want to shift gears and talk about ketone esters because these are interesting. And um, I actually, I did speak to Professor Brendan Egan mm-hmm. um, a few months ago, um, who was a delight to listen to with his accent. <laughs> I love an Aussie accent too, though, so <laughs> I'm loving this right now. Um, like, can you just sort of brief us on some of the things you're interested in looking at with ketone esters? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, Brendan's done a lot more work in this space than I have. So he's definitely the guru to talk to. But we have started to look at ketone esters a little bit more closely. Um, we had a study published maybe last year or the year before, and we actually tried to combine the low-carb, high-fat diet with a ketone ester. So what we've seen with the low-carb, high-fat diet is that there was a, a decreased performance after three weeks of adhering to the diet, and we think it's simply due to the carbohydrate um, restriction aspect, glycogen's low, and there's pathways involved with energy metabolism that have been impaired. But ketosis and ketones have been proposed as this additional fuel source that could be used to sustain performance. So we've tried to combine the two approaches as like a top-up to the keto diet being the ketone ester, Um, but we didn't see any beneficial effects from this combined approach. So that wasn't something that we were able to, uh, or not something that we could implement going forward. It didn't do anything um, above what we expected from the keto diet alone. Um, but we are, uh, Jamie Whitfield and I are, are running a study currently looking at the ketone ester. He's primarily interested in its use in recovery, so looking at um, muscle protein synthesis as a result of ketone ester intake after exercise. And I'm more interested in, you know, the ketone esters provide a really cool mechanistic model whereby you're getting ketosis, but you still have adequate carbohydrate availability. So I really want to look at some of the the follow-up to the PhD work around keto diets and iron regulation and look at is it the ketones or is it the carbohydrate? And I assume it's the carbohydrate that's causing the changes in iron metabolism and bone metabolism, but this is a nice model where I can look at that and tease out the carbohydrate and the ketone influences. Um, so that's something we're currently currently looking at. Yeah. Oh, that sounds super interesting. Um, and finally, it's so funny. I'm like, what are all these things I want to ask Alana about this? You've just got a lot, but um, yeah, I, lot. I am really like, I did also see just a couple of different papers that you're an author on as well that look at, that do a basic overall audit of sort of the space of the female athlete with regards to, you know, carbohydrate recommendations, uh, micronutrient supplementation and, um, and overall sort of health. Like that's quite vague, but on that, can you give me sort of an overview of, you know, where do we stand in terms of the research um, focus on females? I know this is tra- changing as we're sort of moving forward, but as it stands, like what what can we um, sort of derive from from our current knowledge base? Yeah, so um, I think the area of female athletes is is super interesting. This is where I've been spending a lot of my time of late too, and um, we've had 
been really lucky. We have two exceptional PhD students here at ACU, um, Megan Kirkman and Ella Smith, who have really driven these audits. And when we went started to dive into this female athlete space, we didn't even know where to start. You know, there is so many areas where females are underrepresented. And we looked at some of the areas where we're really interested in. So carbohydrates, a big one. And so Megan uh, took some of the, she audited the carbohydrate research and she showed that there was so little females represented in the um the female carbohydrate research, and I no, I haven't got the number here. It's like but, nine. I, I saw. Um, I think it's like nine yeah, percent or thirteen percent or nine to sixteen yes. percent. I think when we looked at across both acute and she's actually just had another paper accepted looking at chronic fueling strategies. So things like the keto diet and and other strategies like that. And it's not only that there's not much research, but the quality of that research is really poor. There's no control of menstrual cycle and. Um, we there's good evidence that says that things like fat oxidation does change across the menstrual cycle. And a lot of these papers didn't even classify their athletes as, you know, naturally menstruating or eumenorrheic or on contraception. And when they did, there's often really confusing um, crossover terminology. So she's really put some um, thoughts down around how we may need to target our research into looking at uh, recommendations that are specific to female athletes. The best that we've done so far is that we've scaled carbohydrate targets to body size to account for smaller females but that's not exactly counting for females in the research so that's some of Megan's work and then Ella's work has looked at both performance supplements and um, health supplements and um, Ella's work around performance supplements showed a really similar thing that females were underrepresented but when she looked at the health supplements so we're talking iron vitamin d and calcium she actually showed that females were really well represented in the literature about 70 percent and that's because um, females are probably the ones that suffer from these micronutrient deficiencies the most. But there are still big issues around um, menstrual cycle control or even just reporting. And also a lot of these athlete, um, these females weren't athletes. So we still have a niche space in the athlete area that's still not addressed. Um, but at least females are being represented. And actually in those studies, the majority of females, or maybe not the majority, but a good substantial part were pregnant. And because pregnancy is obviously an area where we see micronutrient deficiencies, there is a lot more attention on females in pregnancy than there is on athletes. But at least it was a step in terms of including females in the right direction. So Megan and Ella are doing really good work in this space, and I, I think they will continue to as well. That's awesome, Alan. And I do find it is interesting, isn't it? Like in, in sort of public health research or health research, like if I think just weight loss, which is an area which I've been sort of primarily interested in over my career, like it's, it's, you know, 90% women, you know, but when it comes to the exercise science and um, exercise performance and, and things like that, that absolutely like it's it, the lion's share of, of um, data. It certainly comes from that sort of male. Um, yeah. And male a lot of, um, it's often cited and I, I heard it as an undergrad a lot and I even probably was a bit guilty of it during my PhD and females are hard to research and there's no getting around that. If you want to do good scientific control, you have to control for the menstrual cycle um, to some degree and it's difficult. We've just implemented a study with elite rugby league players and there were 25 in a team with us at one time and how do you account for each individual's menstrual cycle and get a meaningful outcome and performance? It's really, really difficult but we all need to do a better job at trying to do that still. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, hey, you mentioned it earlier on with regards to fasted training, you know, builds mental uh, tenacity and, <laughs> yeah. you know, like a challenge. So, no, I, I completely agree. Um, 
Alana, thank you so much for your time. Can we just finish off by you sort of telling us, you know, what should we be looking out for with regards to other um, published stuff in the literature this year? What What are you hoping to sort of get out there? Yeah, that's a big question. We've got so much on the go. I think yeah. um, if I focus on my iron work, because that's the thing I'm most passionate about, we do have a paper um, which will be an abstract at ACSM this year and the paper shouldn't follow too far behind. It's about going to review um looking at iron supplementation timing. So as I talked about before, we've tried to refine the timing guidelines a little bit further and we use some novel um, isotope measurements both at sea level and at altitude and we looked at how that affects iron absorption. And the trial we have on the go, which is the really exciting one for me, it's called the FEAR study, so FE, iron absorption in runners and race walkers. And we've actually labelled a, a large bunch of runners, um, 50 to 60 runners, both male and female, with a isotope. And we're actually tracking that isotope over a 12-month training period. And at the end of the study, we'll be able to distinguish iron loss from iron absorption. And we'll hope to be able to put some really targeted strategies in place to try and help treat iron deficiency in athletes. And we'll also be able to, hopefully, the goal is, if if it works, is to calculate some new dietary recommendations for athletes because we don't have any for ironing. We rely on the general population guidelines, but that's not sufficient for athletes. So hopefully, if our study works, we should be able to put some really specific both male and female iron recommendations out into the literature. So that will be one for 2024 probably. Alana, that is fantastic. Like as I sort of said when we kicked off, like your contribution in this space um, seems almost not overwhelming but you've, you've just done so much and if what you're talking about, like when that comes to fruition, that's just like further um, sort of proving – well, not proving my point, but uh, further showing just how um, the work that you guys are doing is just pretty outstanding, really. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm very lucky. I work here under Louise Burke and she's yeah. as good as it gets when it comes to sports nutrition, so I couldn't have a better mentor in Louise and um, the team here at ACU is so supportive and it's just a great place to be. That's awesome, Alana. So um, now I um, have found I found you looking at your profile in ACU and on Twitter is there a better place or is that where people should look? I think Twitter's probably the best place at the moment. I try to put at least a little bit of an update on some of our lab trials and things that are happening on Twitter and all our recent publications will definitely be there too. That is awesome. Well, we will put um, links to your both your publications and your Twitter handle in the show notes. And um, thanks so much for your time, Alana. No, thank you for having me. It's been great. Alrighty then, and look, for such a young researcher, she has a wealth of different uh, publications and research interests, and it is really exciting to see this sort of new generation of researchers come through and expand our understanding in different areas. So um, I hope you really enjoyed that interview. Next week on the show, I talk to naturopath and sports nutritionist Kira Sutherland all about diet for teenage athletes and do not forget that I have my anatomy of fat loss live virtual event that is taking place this Sunday 
well it's virtual so it's wherever you are and it runs over three days so we will put a link in the show notes to that so you can jump on sign up and we can kick off and this is all to give you the tools and tactics that you need to help you be successful in your fat loss journey love that word journey not at all overused right however if you've got any questions on this or anything, don't hesitate to touch base. You'll find me on Twitter at Mickey Willardin and Instagram at Mickey Willardin or over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition. You can always also send an inquiry through my website, mickeywillardin.com. Have a great rest of your week. <laughs>